Welcome to the Dipshit Files, episode 92, the Phil Hartman story, a yes. true crime. Yes. This one's going to be, I don't know what's coming, actually. I know little tidbits. I have a feeling that we have a collection of listeners that know the case mm. and that probably know the reality behind the case, mm-hmm. but there might be some listeners out there who uh, who may not know yeah. because the media really misled people. Right. There was a lot of misleading information out there. There was a lot of... There was an ugliness. Sounds like it. So... This was by request by me. Yes, this was your request. Phil Hartman is one of my favorite voices in, in my past and a, yes. a person that I always like to try and emulate, which I can't. Mm-hmm. No one can. <laughs> well, of course, some people can. But this is a crazy dipshit files this yeah. week, you guys. And it's going to be sad, huh? Yeah. This one left me... Sometimes I'm frustrated, irritated. Sometimes I'm grossed out, Mm -hmm. um, hating humanity. This one just left me sad. Yeah. This one was just... when When I closed it out after writing, I was just like, well... Huh. Well, there's that. I know it's going to be interesting, though. Yeah, it is. But, all right. Prepare yourselves accordingly. Let's open up the file. Before we get to this week's sadness, <laughs> let's first talk cards, cards, cards. All right. The Dipshit Files 2024 Cryptid Collection is out. Yes, it is. We're excited. It's nine cards plus a Mrs. Scriptkeeper Dark Series card in a magnetic case with a stand. Holy fuck. <laughs> All right, on to the show. The Dipshit Files presents the story of Phil Hartman. So today we're covering the case of a man who was cut down in what would have been the prime of his career. Mm. And that man's name is Phil Hartman. This case is one of the most senseless adult deaths I've researched, and unfortunately, much of the information around this case has been misreported. Yikes. Given how sensationalized it was at the time, the media really took the basic foundation of the story and just ran with it, creating and spreading unsubstantiated rumors for years, which has left the Hartman family in a state of distress. Hmm. There are several stories out there about what happened to Phil as well as many about his private life that only came out after his death. And out of respect for the family and Phil's memory, I will not be covering these tales. However, I will be sharing what is considered to be fact by all parties. We appreciate that. Mm. So for those interested in learning more about this case, uh, check out the book, You Might Remember Me by Mike Thomas. Hmm. This book covers Phil Hartman's life as well as his tragic death. Another book to check out is Live from New York, The Complete Uncensored History of Saturday Night Live. Mm -hmm. Now, for more about this case or about Saturday Night Live in general, I suggest reading or listening to these books. Um, The stories, they throughout the books, they paint a well-rounded picture of Phil and what occurred the night that he was murdered. I recommend watching all 9,000 episodes in order. <laughs> well, they both books are on Audible. So, and uh, this a lot of the information came from here. So, right. All right, let's get started. Fucking A. Phil Hartman was the kind of person who always went the extra mile to get a laugh. Yes, he did. He was the guy who, with very little encouragement, would go on a 10-minute comedic monologue over a subject as random as blueberries and leave everyone in tears. But to say that comedy was his destiny would be misleading. Phil was born September 24, 1948, in Brantford, Ontario, to his parents Doris and Rupert Hartman. He was the middle child of the family, the fourth of eight total children, and because of this, Phil had to work hard to get the attention he so thoroughly desired from his parents. His siblings recalled that their parents, though loving and, and very supportive, had very little time to give the children, which often left them feeling lonely and somewhat invisible. He was in the Jan position right. of the Brady Bunch. <laughs> right. Marsha, 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 right. man. And that little Brady hair, that <laughs> the one little, with the pigtails, got all the fucking attention. Alice? Uh, no, well, Alice was the... the she was the, the lady, the... Why do I want to call her Kim? What was the youngest? The youngest one in curls. I don't fucking I know. don't even remember. Yeah, I should know. 
Some it ends huh. with an E. It's Lucy. B- B- I don't even know. What's it? What's our a listeners Biba? are screaming right now. They're What's totally yelling. Marsha, J- Cindy, Cindy, Marsha, Jan, and Cindy. It's totally Cindy. Okay. Okay. That was a great diversion. <laughs> right into the sadness. So Phil's father worked tirelessly to keep a roof over the family's head as a salesman and was doing all he could to make sure they had food on the table. Meanwhile. Their mother was always trying to find ways to make money while taking care of the daily chores and children. That sounds like every human being. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, it's pretty normal family stuff. Yeah, yeah. His siblings went on to say that unless you were going above and beyond positively or negatively, you weren't given much face time uh, with either of the parents. So you got to get in trouble. Or be you know way above and beyond the goodness oh you gotta be all state fucking (laughs) lacrosse or some shit so phil's younger sister sarah jane required around the clock care from doris and the rest of the family as she had engelman syndrome engelman syndrome is a rare genetic disorder that is characterized by delayed development intellectual disability severe speech impairment and problems with movement and balance Hmm. Developmental delays, which begin uh, between 6 and 12 months of age, are usually the first signs of Engelman syndrome. Seizures might begin between the ages of 2 and 3 years old. Mm. At the time, Engelman syndrome wasn't widely known, and there are very few options when it came to care. The family had considered putting Sarah Jane in a facility where they would be better equipped to support her needs. However, they weren't able to find a facility they were comfortable with. This led to her medical and physical care falling on the shoulders of the family, which left the family with even less money and time to give each other. When Sarah was born, Phil was only three years old, and in his mind, Sarah's disability was his fault. He couldn't wrap his head around the idea that her diagnosis had nothing to do with him, and when his mother was too exhausted from taking care of her to pay any attention to him, he internalized this guilt feeling as though he would never truly be worthwhile. Kids don't know how to ask those questions Mm -mm. either. No, and I think that falls on the parents to be, and no fault to this mother. I'm sure she was taxed completely as far as time and attention. But it falls on the parents to be mindful of their children and their reactions and the words that they use and their body language. You know, having an open dialogue with your kids as open as you can be according to their age and their understanding level yeah. is important. And you know this, but if you're getting a divorce or you've been divorced, you, you have to tell your kids it's not their fault. Right. Even the older kids. You well, really do. I found that out the hard way. It, it I didn't happens. know I had to say it. <laughs> well, I mean, it's not in a handbook <laughs> anywhere for you to... No, I didn't find out until a decade later that I should have said it's not your fault. Just makes sense though, doesn't it? It does. Well, this deep need for validation that was left unfulfilled by his family would eventually lead Phil to comedy. As he was growing up, he realized that academically, he wasn't going to measure up to his siblings, who had all gotten A's in school. In sports, he felt like he would never compare to his all-American jock older brother. Hmm. He was all-American? Yeah, I just said all-state. Jesus (laughs) Christ, all-American. Fucking... This is a very interesting family. Jesus Christ. Just wait. He needed, Phil needed his own outlet, something that he could be recognized for and quite the bar to be raised <laughs> shit get that and the moment he cracked a joke and his entire family laughed he felt a rush like he had never felt in his life dude that's it it's like the moment you get attention from adults you're like oh it's mm-hmm. on that's my window two things yay the feeling of validation that swept over him was something that he'd never experienced before and he was going to follow that as far as it would take him In school, his humor led him to being voted class clown by his high school graduating class, which interestingly also included future Manson family member Lynette Squeaky Fromay. Sheesh. So he was the bane of his teacher's careers, however, Mm -hmm. (laughs) as he would use their classes as a workshop for his comedy. (laughs) He would riff on different subjects in class and his jokes would never fail to get laughs. Phil's need for validation didn't just apply to his love of making people laugh. He never truly felt as if he fit in where he was and would constantly put on different personas in order to find where he felt as if he belonged. Mm. He would often take up different societal roles like that of a stoner 
or the rocker dude or the <laughs> athlete and deeply immerse himself into that character. Mm. He would take on the personality of the people he was surrounded by, trying to find individuals he thought understood him. But each time he would just end up feeling like an imposter. Carry on my wayward son. Most who knew him knew him as a fun-loving, spirited guy who knew when to pull back on a joke before it went too far. The guy who would do almost anything to make people smile and to brighten their days. But few knew how deep and introspective Phil actually was. His longtime childhood friend was able to call only one instance when he saw what he described as the real Phil. The real Phil, he said, was socially withdrawn and curious about the universe. Life and death fascinated him, and it was only in a few rare moments that Phil was truly comfortable with the people around him, and in those fleeting moments, he would allow others to see him and experience who he actually was. Phil's strong need for validation, his incredible ability to find the humor in absolutely anything, and his deep introspection made him an extremely attractive romantic option amongst the girls as well. He was always... That voice, though, he was just... <laughs> Troy McClure. I can't... No one, no one could do it like him. Man. Fuck. He was always able to make them laugh. And though he didn't outwardly appear to be romantic, he would write every one of his girlfriend's deep poetic love letters, professing his feelings and stating how in awe of their beauty he was. <laughs> one of his high school girlfriends, Kathy Costa, would later recall that though he had a poet's hand and would write her some of the most beautiful letters. As a boyfriend, he could be quite distant. Hmm. It seemed that he liked the chase. And I the like boobies, but I don't know what to do with the boobies. <laughs> what do I do with the boobies? He liked the chase and the dramatics of love, the highs of being together and the lows of being apart. He needed to feel needed by the other person, or it felt as if he were being ignored or left behind. Phil's constant search for validation from others often resulted in his leaving romantic partners before they could leave him. However, he was never aggressive or demanding. Instead, he would become incredibly withdrawn if he felt that his needs weren't being met or as if he were being pushed to the side. He would close himself off emotionally, becoming detached from his partner without so much as an explanation as to why. Well, that's better than some alternatives, I guess. (laughs) Many of his friends noted the same thing. As Phil responded to stressful situations by emotionally detaching, leaving the other person to figure out things on their own. Phil's second wife, Lisa Strain, would later state that Phil would disappear emotionally, literally disappear. Phil's body would be there, but he would be in his own world. That passivity made you crazy. To many who witnessed Phil's emotional detachment in moments of high stress, it felt as if he didn't care and would just give up on things when they got difficult. But to those who knew him best, it was clear that confrontation and high stress was just too much for him. In times of great emotion, he would lose his words and be unable to properly communicate. Only after detaching and getting space would he be able to properly explain himself, though most of the time it would take years for him to do so. After high school, Phil briefly attended college to pursue a degree in art, instead of pursuing one in acting. See, he had seen his brother John pursue acting himself. Oh, Mr. (laughs) All-America? I don't know how many brothers he actually has. I'm guessing Um, that it could be. John pursued the acting himself, only for nothing to come of it. Phil saw that Nothing happened, and he wanted to make sure he had something to fall back on. Phil was an incredible... I'll paint for a living. Sorry. Well, Phil was an incredible artist. Yeah. Actually having drawn cartoons for his high school paper. Fucking A, bro. But felt like, once again, art was a mask of sorts that he wore to conceal what he truly wanted to do. Hmm. A mask that would quickly vanish when his brother and a group of friends created a live concert venue called... The Kaleidoscope. What? Mr. All-America bought a goddamn... Well, I, a do, goddamn I, I don't... built a venue? I don't know if John was the All-America guy. Okay. I don't know. Well... One of his brothers was. <laughs> okay. John... Some homework for somebody that's real studious out there. They can well, throw that in the comments. John, the brother that had unsuccessfully pursued acting, had found work at a talent agency that focused solely on music, hmm. where he worked with the likes of Sonny and Cher. 
But that didn't stop him from dreaming bigger. With friends, bigger than fucking share. Well, with friends, Skip Taylor and Gary Essert, Phil's brother bought the property and brought their vision to life. Nice. The venue would serve as the backdrop for some of the most amazing shows of all time, and though it was only open for six months, become one of the most popular venues of all time. I know so many dudes and ladies that dream and have dreamt and have done venues. Mm-hmm. It's just like, this is fun to hear. Well, this is, it's too interesting not to share. Um, there's a bunch of information that Don't I do it by the way. I Sorry. pulled uh, that I pulled up about this building, mm-hmm. but I'm going to share. I'm going to save this part and I'm going to share it uh, in Patreon for the bonus. Shit. So oh, I'm going to. The building itself is dirty, cool as hell. <laughs> okay. Well, let's keep it on Phil Hartman then. Call. Oh. <laughs> All right. Well, some with some amazing, great musical names gracing the kaleidoscope. Great stage. and amazing. Yeah, totally. Ooh, thunderous drums. Bah, 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 bah. Phil Hartman was mm. at the center of it. All. He regularly attended concerts and made friends with some of the most famous bands of all time. Using his comedy chops, Phil would often pretend to be different characters at these shows. <laughs> Sometimes he would pretend he'd pretend to be a roadie so he could get backstage. <laughs> Other times he'd convince girls that he was the security detail for his friend who he claimed was a famous stuntman. Oh, for crying that out loud. had just finished a day of shooting some movie. Mm. People were drawn to him and wanted to be around him just to see what he would do next. And when the venue inevitably shut down after only a handful of months in operation, one of the bands who called themselves the Rockin' Foo Mm -hmm. had taken a liking to Phil, and they offered him a job as a roadie. He toured with the band, living with them as they traveled around until finally he settled down with his first wife, Gretchen Lewis. After he invested all that good, hard-earned roadie money. That's that good (laughs) shit. Now together, uh, they lived at the Foo House, a home that was owned by the band where groupies came in and out as they pleased. Now, for Gretchen... I kind of want to think Flophouse. (laughs) It's just how bands do. Foo House, it's the Flophouse. For for Gretchen, this was a difficult time. You know, and and I can understand this. Eventually, though... No, you cannot. The the pair were able to get their own place, (laughs) albeit with the help of her father. Oh, Dad. Well, after about two years together, they would divorce. Neither had any animosity towards the other, and in fact... Gretchen would recall them both agreeing that it had been the best thing to do. He missed the flop house is what it was. Well, it's a good time. <laughs> if it's not super hard drugs in that place, it's a good time. According to her, the relationship just kind of ended. No fanfare, no anger. One day it was just over and that was that. So after his divorce, Phil went back to school and got a degree in graphic art and his brother hired him at his music production company as their only full-time graphic designer. Okay. He went on to make multiple iconic album covers, including... Led Zeppelin four, All of the other things that Led Zeppelin did. Metallica, all the covers. <sighs> Pearl Jam stuff. What's your favorite band? What that one, hell? too. Fleetwood Mac stuff. Album covers, including the artwork featured on the Poco album Legend. Oh, that's not as big as any of the bands I said, but Poco's cool. And, oh, what? It's cool. And created the logo for Crosby, Stills, and Nash that they still use today. All right, they're pretty big. That's a good logo, too. Phil, nice, fancy-looking logo. Phil was supporting himself by doing what he loved. Fuck yeah. And the Nike logo. Are you done? And McDonald's. And also the Apple logo with the bite out of it. What's that about? Is that some kind of like Adam and Eve thing? What's that deal? What's that? Did you get it out of your system? I think so. Okay. Okay, I'm getting the look under the gla- or over the glasses. <laughs> I'm going to just sip on my coffee over here away from the microphone. Even though he was supporting himself by doing what he loved, he still felt unfulfilled. Yum. He loved art and design and felt incredibly proud to put his own stamp on the music he enjoyed, but Fuck yeah. he had gotten his degree as a fallback. What he really wanted to do was act and make people laugh. But he felt uh, as if there was no way to make a valid living in this arena. In his mind, being a working comedian was hard, but being a failed comedian was just embarrassing. (laughs) For the most part, he got by entertaining the musical acts that came through his office day after day. He would make up characters on the spot or act out entertaining scenarios that were happening in pop culture, and he would inevitably bring everyone to tears. However, when he was left on his own to create, he found himself completely unfulfilled. One night after work, 
he and a friend went out to see a comedy troupe called The Groundlings at a small theater. Due to an undisclosed issue backstage, the group... They were underground. Well, the group was... They were running late with a performance that night. They were stuck underground. Sensing mild upset in the audience, Phil decided to spring into action and entertain the crowd with his own comedy stylings. Oh my God, one out of how many people would jump on stage if they had a chance? Well, he did. That's awesome. He had about 15 minutes. Fuck yeah, Brown. Now, the group could hear... Respect Brown. The group could hear laughter from backstage and many members looked out to see what they described as a random-looking guy doing his own bits. And what, to my wondrous eyes disappear? Fucking Phil Hartman in the flesh in his rookie card pose. <laughs> some members were irritated, thinking some random comedian was trying to use their stage as an open mic. But even more, were entertained, finding his improv skills to be top-notch. Dude, this is a movie story. His stories should be a movie. After the Groundlings performed that night, Phil inquired about joining after serving as sort of an opening act for them and making the entire audience burst out laughing. Isn't this that mom spaghetti scene from 8 Mile? But I mean, for comedy? Sorry. I mean, he totally warmed up the crowd. That night, he realized that he might actually have what it takes to be a comedian the way he always wanted. He was informed that joining the group would mean taking years of improv classes at his own expense, and instead of being dissuaded, he immediately joined. <laughs> this is going to take your entire life. It's going to pay dog shit. You have to sleep on the couch or on the foot of my bed. Unbeknownst to him, at that time, he was well on his way to becoming one of the most well-respected and loved comedians in history. Yeah. His time with the Groundlings has become something of a myth, as everyone who knew him or had the chance to watch his growth were in complete awe of his talent, comedic abilities, and quick wit. Most newcomers to the group would struggle with their first attempts at improv, feeling too self-conscious to play along with the more established member skits, but not Phil. Hmm. He came armed with various characters who he had personified for years. Hmm. He could be anyone they needed him to be. Caveman at law, or whatever and, the fuck. And even small lines were hilarious when delivered by him. The years Phil had spent adopting different lifestyles and characteristics in his day-to-day life had paid off. He could seamlessly transform from a smarmy businessman who thought too highly of himself to a laid-back surfer dude who smoked way too much weed to keep his eyes open. (laughs) And what's more, he had the natural ability to make every character feel real. Because he smoked so much weed. (laughs) We don't know that. Let's find out. During this time, Phil met and married his second wife, Lisa Strain. Phil would go on to state that he and Lisa were soulmates. She was a challenge for him and kept him on his toes in ways that others hadn't. He described her in personal letters as a firecracker. Ow, my soul! Ow, I love this! And someone who could bring anyone to their knees with her words. Hmm. She was smart, funny, and beautiful, and she provided him with a sense of belonging that he hadn't experienced prior. Hmm. However, much like with his previous relationships, when problems arose, Phil retreated. Lisa would call him out regarding his emotional detachment and found herself going out of her way to try and regain his attention. She would dress provocatively when they were together. She'd make attention-grabbing statements going out of her way to get his attention, but he still rejected all of her advances. Hmm. To Lisa, he seemed resigned and checked out of the relationship, and after months of this continuous behavior, Lisa began to feel like he didn't love her anymore. This was not the case, however. The two just lacked the ability to properly communicate. Lisa wanted attention and affection, and Phil didn't know what he needed and was entirely incapable of expressing himself in a way that Lisa was able to understand. He probably wanted boobies, though. I bet he he was going for that. And so after three years together... I'm sorry. The pair would break up, but Phil would never stop loving her. He loved that boobies. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Despite the hardship in his romantic life, Phil quickly established himself within the group as being the top comedic dog which was high praise given that, at the time, the group featured comedians such as Paul Rubens, Mm. Cassandra Peterson, better known as Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, and John Lovitz. Fucking acting! His sketches and ideas were put at the top of every pile, 
And every time he was on stage, he was guaranteed to get laughed. Mm-hmm. After a couple of years, Phil began to get disheartened. See, over the years, he watched other members of the Groundlings get incredible professional opportunities and leave the group to have successful careers on their own. Paul Rubens left the group after the character he had made, Pee Wee Herman. And he joined White Zombie. Became a star in his own right with the movie and television series. Phil, being (laughs) one of the people who helped shape Pee-wee as a character, wrote the part of the screenplay for Pee-wee's Big Adventure and had a significant role in Pee-wee's Playhouse. He sure as fuck did. That might be the first time we all saw him, right? But he couldn't help but feel left behind. Unfortunately, this ended with the dissolution of Rubens and Hartman's friendship, one that would never be repaired, unfortunately. During this time... A TV show was on the rise in popularity and was scouting comedians. Now, I stumbled across more interesting shit that I thought would be good to know, as well as give a better understanding and appreciation to comedy improv. And it's about SNL. But this is another little blurb that I'm going to put in the bonus. Cool. We have a buddy that there's a a place called Second City where a lot of people that want to be on snl go yeah and we we met a buddy in san francisco oh yeah yeah that he got in to mm-hmm. that and his i would love to have him on maybe jar in the future or yeah. something but all yeah. right let's go to the next part so after rubens and hartman parted ways mm. lauren michaels actually and lauren michaels is uh basically the the creator and producer yes. of saturday night live thank you very much <laughs> actually came to watch the groundling show he was actually looking for new talent for the SNL cast. The group was shocked when he scouted Lovitz over Hartman. And even more shocked that Lovitz didn't try to bring Hartman with him. Ah. At this time, Hartman felt like his career had hit its apex and that he had already gone as far as he would be able to go. Well, the small parts in movies and shows and the, some of the voice acting work that he had under his belt left him feeling as if he had ultimately failed in his pursuit of fame. And he was close to giving up. Wow. That was until he met Bryn Omdahl in 1986. Dun, dun, dun. Now, if Bryn Omdahl were alive today, she would likely be increasingly bitter that her celebrity status was only due to her attachment to her husband hmm. and the murder she committed. Oh, my. Most of the reporting around Bryn's life was done through the lens of what she would later go on to do to Phil. Now we're into this sad shit. Well, though details are sparse about her early life, they are illuminating. Bryn was born Vicky Joe Omdahl. That's, on the, that's not Bryn. What, what part of that's Bryn? Right. Well, we go into that. All right. She was born Vicky Joe Omdahl on April 11th, 1958, in a small town in Minnesota. She was a succubus, huh? She was always a go-getter. They punch hard in Minnesota. And the kind of girl who wanted more for herself and thought she deserved to have it. Mm. Growing up in the tiny town with a middle-class family, she always felt as if she was destined for the bright lights of Hollywood. Oh, probably, and probably government, too. Why not? Well, Fuck. Bryn truly... I'm a goddamn queen! Bryn truly felt as if she was simply better than those around her. Oh, wow. She grew up to honestly be a beautiful woman with bright blonde hair, and she towered over her peers. The planet loves irony. People later... Or God, or whatever the fuck you want to call it. People later described her as an all-American beauty and the ultimate girl next door. Many who encountered her immediately told her that she should be a model. And go into oh, show business. Telling and, people like that that you're beautiful and mm-hmm. awesome and amazing is like, oh. Well, she loved the praise. Vicki <laughs> Joe would eventually drop out of high school to marry her longtime boyfriend, Douglas Torfin. However, he was not good enough for her. Fuck, she is not going to deal with this guy unless he's got a fucking Porsche on a cloud. The marriage would would sour with her growing means. need for recognition. Porsche. Fucking nobody wants Porsche. Torfin would start the next phase of their life. He wanted to settle down and have children. I'd take a Porsche. But Vicky was more interested in her career. Have you ever seen a Porsche? They're fucking tight. According to those who knew her at this point in her life, she became obsessed with the idea that she was going to be famous. 9-11 Carrera 4. And there was virtually nothing that anyone could do to stop her. Carrera. After nine years of marriage, Vicky Joe left Douglas and moved to Minneapolis to start her modeling career. 
After some minor success in Minneapolis, she felt confident moving all the way across the country to California. More specifically, Hollywood. Hollywood, what's your dream? Everyone around her told her that she had exactly the right look to be a star. (laughs) And after taking a few acting courses, she felt as if this whole becoming famous thing would be a breeze. This is taking too long. Can you see how beautiful I am inside and out? I'm beautiful. Before heading out to California, she was told that her name didn't quite fit the high fashion model aesthetic she was going for and didn't feel quite Hollywood enough. Mm. So she made the decision to change it to Brendan, then later settling on Bryn. Mm. She felt the name was more exotic and alluring and noted also excitedly that no one she knew no other person, no other stars had that name. Oh, well, she's fucking on to the only thing you need in Hollywood to get ahead. Bryn. This is just a good name. That, right. That's all you need. In, in Minnesota, If you Bryn, got the name Tom, you're fucked. Oh, wait. In Minnesota, Bryn had been a big deal, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, people paid attention to her, and she was able to get whatever she wanted with relative ease. People stopped and stared at her everywhere she went, and ultimately, she was given special treatment because of this. However, in Hollywood, she had a hard time. Despite her natural beauty and flirty nature, she found that tall, pretty blondes weren't exactly rare. And she fit in more than she stood out. Not in Hollywood. Welcome to everyone's dream. Her friends had been right to say that she had the Hollywood look, but so did everyone (laughs) else in Hollywood. It's an archetype that lots of folk have. Oh, well. After a short while, she got some work as a swimsuit model, but rarely, if ever, got callbacks for the acting roles that she went out for. Mm. However, her luck would change when a longtime friend would set her up on a blind date with an aspiring actor and comedian named Phil Hartman. From the moment she laid eyes on him, Bryn knew he was the one, or at least that's what she told her friends. She thought he was hysterical and often mirrored his enthusiasm for his projects. Mm. She believed in him fiercely before he was super successful and was often his loudest cheerleader, which was something he had deeply craved his entire life. But, but I'm getting ahead of myself here. When she met Phil, he wasn't necessarily unsuccessful. He had written a portion of Pee-wee's Big Adventure, had had gotten multiple guest roles on various shows. Including Pee-wee's Playhouse, come on. And was doing multiple voice acting roles. He was earning a great living and making a name for himself in the business. However, his star power was still on the rise when Bryn met him. Despite dating Bryn, Phil still loved and was deeply emotionally connected to his second wife, Lisa though they had broken up and been apart for years by the time Phil met Bryn. Phil still believed that he and Lisa were soulmates. Their relationship, though it had fallen apart, was one that he felt he could never replicate because Lisa had the ability to bring his authentic self to the surface. Even though their issues had caused them to split, he still considered her the true love of his life. Bryn supported him and encouraged him to continue pursuing acting and comedy. She empathized with him about their lack of substantial parts, but she reminded him that, compared to her, he was doing brilliantly. After some coaxing from Bryn and his peers, Phil continued with the groundlings. And Real quick, that seems pretty humbling. That's a nice humble thing mm-hmm. for her to say. So I just shat on her for about you know 10 right. minutes, and I want to keep shitting on her. She has her moments. Yeah, but yeah. She I has mean, her moments. Being a supportive person. Uh, Wife or husband or whatever, right. partner in general. There's a, there's a reason behind that, and we'll get there. Crocky fuck, it's really valuable. In 1986, he would go on to join the cast of Saturday Night Live. Despite her outward support of Phil and pushing him to continue his creative oh, pursuits... Oh, here's the twist, the <clears throat> oh, Henry twist. Many of his friends thought there was something off about Bryn. Even early into the relationship, Cassandra Peterson, the actress behind Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, spoke about it uh, to Phil, stating that something about Bryn always felt off. Whenever she was around Phil's friends, there was a sense that she was acting and not acting well. Well, That's probably why she wasn't getting roles. (laughs) Well, and trying to uh, endear herself to them. She seemed desperate for people to like her and always seemed to be working some kind of angle. When Phil told Cassandra that he planned on marrying Bryn after a year of dating, 
She recoiled and told him she thought this was a huge mistake, a totally bad idea. Bad idea. Cassandra told Phil that there was something wrong with Bryn, and he was rushing into this, but he would hear none of it. She went on to say that that had been the only time she had ever seen him upset with her, Hmm. and they didn't talk for months after. Now, this was likely due to the fact that at the time, Bryn was two months pregnant. With Phil's star on the rise and having been so supportive of his creative endeavors, one would assume that Bryn would have been happy with her husband's newfound fame. Mm -hmm. But the opposite was actually true. The reality was that Bryn had been supportive when she had been in the same boat as Phil, when they were both struggling. And so telling him to keep going wasn't hard. She was telling herself the same thing. Right. But watching him gain all the success and fame that she had wanted for herself was difficult for her. Jelly belly. Fucking great. Oh, gets worse. In the beginning, she prodded him uh, to get her on Saturday Night Live as well. No. She told him that it would be an easy sell. They were a couple after all. And if he were going to have a scene flirting or kissing with someone who, who better to do it with than his wife. Uh, a husband and wife comedy team had yet to be done on Saturday Night Live. I wonder why. Why is that? Hmm, let me think about that. And she implored him to ask Lauren to cast her. The only issue was she wasn't funny. <laughs> Instead, Phil was able to get her a brief, very brief spot in the opening credits in one shot. Here, hold this potted plant. There you go. Now, you can actually see it if you pull it up on YouTube. Phil is announced and seen seated flirting with a blonde woman at a table for a split second. That woman, uh, she's fussing with her hair and her earrings, was in fact Bryn. Hmm. She would go on to tell her friends that getting that one couple of seconds had been extremely difficult as she kept turning and smiling at the camera. She'd been told uh, multiple times not to do that (laughs) as she was just an extra and the entire purpose of the shot was to showcase Phil. But she saw an opportunity and tried to take it. They're going to see me in this split-second shot, and they're going to cast me in Jurassic Park. She insistently prodded Phil to get her a position on the show. And poor Phil, trying to keep her happy, would go to Lauren and the other castmates and try and talk her up. And, And when she came to the set, she would try to impress everyone there with her own comedy chops without realizing how uncomfortable she was making everyone. Him, especially. Exactly. Like, he had to be extra talented for everyone to put up with that shit. I know. (laughs) Well, finally, when she realized that she wasn't going to be allowed on the show and that Phil's star was still on the rise... Sabotage time! She got angry. Yeah, fuck. She became increasingly jealous and over-the-top vitriolic towards Phil. Some people suck. Often putting down certain achievements and belittling him in order to make herself feel more powerful. Mm. On certain occasions, she would become physically abusive towards him. Mm. Multiple hair and makeup people who worked with Phil at Saturday Night Live would recall him coming into work with scratches and bruises on his face. Thinking that you're better than people usually will lead to you hitting them. On at least one occasion, when she came to visit Phil at work, she decided to sit on the laps of every male castmate and try and kiss them. What? Many who were there recalled the experience as totally embarrassing, noting that Bryn had stuck her tongue in the ears of multiple men right in front of her husband, who was trying to laugh it off. It was obvious to everyone there that she was trying to get a rise out of him and to make him angry. But Phil stayed calm, trying to diffuse the situation the best he could. Can I throw some out there? Yeah. He made a lot of cool stuff that was better, noticeably better than everyone. That While everyone was using the same writers, mm-hmm. the same cameras, were in the same cast, he was going through dark shit. And I swear, when artists go through dark shit, mm-hmm. they filter it into their <clears> art. <throat> if they do, even a little bit. Mm-hmm. It just it cuts different. It's like... It's different. He was at his best because it's like, I gotta... Yeah. yeah. I don't know. That's... Obviously speculation. Well, multiple castmates would overhear phone calls between the couple where she would lay into him about his career, how he wasn't home enough and how he didn't really care about her. Wow. And he would simply accept it, never arguing back, uh, past telling her that he was doing his job and he was trying to do his best. Hey, do you see the check for $32,000 a month? <laughs> a month? Hey, Bo, that was a good story. In letters he would write to his friends, he would talk about the abuse and how when Bryn got angry, he would shut down emotionally. 
and how that would just make things worse. He relayed that when he got mad, he went into his own world, and she would throw grenades and bombs to get him out of it. He meant this literally, by the way, as oftentimes in order to escape Bryn's wrath, he would simply just go to bed and go to sleep. Mm. Now, the abuse wasn't just leveled at Phil. Now, Lisa, remember Lisa, Lisa. his, his uh, soulmate? Lisa and Phil had reconnected after their breakup, and they would talk regularly via letter. Both had moved on and were in other relationships with other people, but... That pissed the lady off! In one instance, when talking to Bryn, Phil shared the fact that he believed Lisa was his soulmate. He said that to his wife. Wow. Now, this angered Bryn to no end, and she repeatedly brought it up in arguments. Oh, yeah, fuck. After the birth of their first child, Sean... Lisa sent a letter of congratulations to the couple saying the pair would make amazing parents and she would be there should they need anything. Now, upon receiving this letter, Bryn was furious. She believed that Lisa was trying to make a pass at Phil Hmm. and that this letter was proof of an affair between the two. In response, she sent a three-page letter threatening Lisa. And a dead fucking rat's head and some dead flowers and a box of shit. Telling her that if she ever spoke to Phil or her again... More boxes of shit. She would kill her. Oh, that's worse. This letter included graphic depictions of what she would do to Lisa should she see her in person. What the fuck? And ended with her, with telling her to watch her back. Hmm. I bet she started to. Well, um, when Lisa received the letter, she was terrified. Yeah, I imagine. She told Especially Phil... Especially with the box of shit with a rat head. Sorry. She told Phil about it, thinking that he couldn't have allowed this to happen and needed to know what kind of person his wife was. He's however... Like, I shit in the box. Sorry. However, when she told him about the letter, he simply responded that, uh, well, she should have seen the first draft. Oh my, what? Uh, LOL. (laughs) (laughs) So as the letter she received uh, was actually toned down. Crocky, fuck! Bryn was paranoid about every woman and man that Phil spent his time around. She wrote the same kind of vitriol-filled letter to his castmate, Jan Hooks, Mm. although he forbade her to send it, telling her that it would potentially lead to issues for him at work. Yeah, probably. Hooks and Hartman were often paired in scenes together and called each other, they they called each other their comedy spouses. Oh, that's not good for a narcissistic. For Jan, Phil was the person who would ease her anxiety during shows and would often offer her support before anyone else would even think to do so. They were close friends, something which Bryn had absolutely detested. At the same time, Bryn hated most of the men that Phil spent his time around as well. And this is because of his, uh, well, from what people assume it's because of his sensitivity and introspection Bryn would often accuse phil of being gay Hmm. now he wasn't of course but regardless Bryn grew more and more paranoid the more time he spent with other people and not her Hmm. Bryn's insecurities about the relationship didn't just pertain to people who phil surrounded himself with either when he shut down emotionally due to the stress of their fighting Bryn, just as Lisa had done in the past, thought Phil was no longer attracted to her. She would dress up to get his attention, and when that didn't work, she went out and had plastic surgery to make herself look more desirable. She told her friends that it had been a mutual decision and that Phil loved the changes she made, but he denied this. Privately, he told his friends that he had told her not to get the surgeries multiple times. But she insisted that he would like her better if she got them. And maybe those casting directors wouldn't recognize her and her bad acting. But she also thought the surgeries would make her more employable. Well. And the the casting agents would find her more attractive. Isn't my finger on the pulse of this psycho. But she continued to receive denial after denial, even with the surgeries. You got to act good. They're looking for, well, not all the time. Shortly after the birth of Sean, Bryn gave birth to their second child. Bergen. Bryn was their full-time caretaker. However, when she went out for auditions, she hired a nanny. Now, her only prerequisite when hiring uh, a nanny was that the person were, as she put it, fat and unattractive. Wow. That way, Phil wouldn't pay attention to them. 
Holy crap, this woman's a nightmare. Yeah. So if Phil took the time to speak to their nannies or any help she had hired for that matter, she man, has them killed. man or woman, didn't matter, they would immediately be fired. What the fuck? This happened on multiple occasions. So the relationship between Bryn and Phil was beyond toxic, but they tried to keep it together. Phil didn't want another divorce. Well, I mean, he never wanted to divorce any of his previous wives either. It had always been them who ultimately ended the relationship. However, he knew that no matter who decided to end this marriage, should if it, if it ended in divorce, uh, if he should try to divorce Bryn, <laughs> it wouldn't be as amicable as his last two. Right, it'd be a, a nuclear bomb going Right. On. For the entire time Phil spent on Saturday Night Live, he would talk about Bryn wanting a divorce seemingly every other week. And he joked that she would take him for everything he had if she had the chance. I wonder if during that time period, if he had some real dark sketches. Right. Interesting to look and see the timeline. I bet so too. However, most around him knew he wasn't joking. After eight successful seasons, Phil left Saturday Night Live. He had become known as the glue that kept the show together Hmm. and was one of, if not the most, revered castmates of his time. Yeah, he's one of my favorites of all time, for sure. Well, by the time he made the decision to officially leave, he already had a couple of irons in the fire with multiple creators pitching him his own primetime show based around his comedic talents. He had worked with a few talent writers, and each time he tried to find a role for Bryn. You know, no, he because would, she wouldn't shut the fuck up about it. Calm right? Down. Well, he'd hype up her talents and skill. <laughs> and, and they're like, "But look on the film. Look at what we filmed. That's not talent, though, bro." Well, while most of the producers were courteous, they passed on her altogether. <laughs> there had to have been a couple that were like, "Get the fuck out, Phil," fearing that hiring his wife would lead to chaos in the workplace. That's you know, they passed up on her. Oh God! At one yeah. point, Bryn gave Phil a script for the show she had written herself oh, piss. and asked him to give it to some executives he, he, that he knew. She was convinced that she had written the next great American sitcom. He's like, I'd rather drink a 48-ounce fucking diarrhea. And she truly believed that finally, after years of watching Phil succeed, it would be her turn for the spotlight. <laughs> oh, no. However, Broken everyone bones. he showed it to passed on it almost immediately. And <laughs> Phil apologized to them for wasting their time. He felt as if he were debasing himself like a schoolboy forced to apologize to a teacher when he got home well they had kids right one kid together two two kids together so he's like fuck i gotta keep this together right well this only served to anger her more Uh and she became convinced that phil had purposely got in the way of her success (laughs) yeah this woman is is not on her husband's team it's like when you go on american idol and then you don't sing a single note in key and then you're like sad because they say things to you and you're like but but I'm the best. Right. It's like, what what planet? Who are you? There's no one around you to tell you what the fuck, bro. While Phil continued to flourish in his professional life, Bryn began coping with her self-pity and victimhood by using drugs and alcohol. More specifically, cocaine. What a great combination. She would lash out more aggressively against Phil, telling him that he was the reason she had mental health issues and threatened to get physical with him in front of the kids. Each time he was made aware of her drug use, he would remove the kids from her care entirely and insist that she go to rehab. He would pay for it all. She just had to commit to her own sobriety. He felt as if uh, her stress and exhaustion was not unlike his own mother who had a mental breakdown while taking care of his sister. Hmm. She too had to seek medical treatment for a short period and in his mind, Bryn was trying to make the best out of a bad situation, just like his mother had. Phil felt as if he needed to be there for her, but after a couple of failed trips to rehab and her repeated relapses and acting out in front of the kids, Phil had had enough. In 1998, after Bryn had relapsed once more, Phil sat her down. He hadn't wanted to get a divorce prior, and he wanted more than anything for their relationship to work, but... She was putting his kids in danger. He told her this was her last chance. This would be her last rehab trip. He told her that if she continued to use drugs or if she relapsed again after this trip to rehab, he was going to leave her. He said if that meant quitting acting to take care of the kids all by himself, that's what he was going to do. 
Phil stated that she was a great mother when she was sober, but he couldn't trust her when she was using. Hmm. Bryn would later tell her friends that she knew he was serious and that this was their last shot. Likewise, she had gone to the doctor who had prescribed her Zoloft to deal with her mental health. As she spoke about how stressed and unhappy she had been in the last couple of years, the couple was on their last legs. According to friends, they were just trying to get through the month of May together and were fighting to save the relationship, but neither of them would live to see June 1st. On the night of May 27, 1998, Bryn had plans to meet up with a friend for dinner at Boca de Beppo. She was in high spirits that night and actually kind and sweet to everyone she encountered. Her friend, Christine Zander, stated that she was in good spirits and nursed two drinks that night. At one point, Zander went to the bathroom to freshen up and Bryn took the opportunity to make a call at the payphone in the restaurant. Who she called and what they spoke about is still unknown, but multiple witnesses said her tone seemed to be slightly upset when she got back to the table, though she was once again in high spirits very soon. After they finished dinner, Bryn didn't want to go home. Instead, she went to the home of Ron Douglas, a former boyfriend who she kept in touch with. Oh, boy. She and Douglas would do cocaine with each other on occasion. And and that's it. Nothing else ever. Well, Phil knew about this. As much as he supported her friendship with Douglas, he did not support the drug use. At Ron's house, Bryn drank a couple beers with Ron and spoke to him about her marital issues. She complained about Phil and how emotionally detached he had been, talked about how he had forbidden her from doing any more coke, and just seemed dejected. (laughs) After a couple hours of her complaining, Ron told her it would be best if she just went home, back home to the kids. He would later state that Bryn seemed annoyed at this thought. However, after a bit of coaxing, Bryn finally left and returned to her house. Coaxing. Right. At no point throughout the night did anyone witness Bryn doing cocaine, and no one reported that she seemed incredibly high or drunk. However, as her toxicology report would later show, she started using coke again and was incredibly high the entire night. Later, it was discovered that she had relapsed earlier in the week and had been able to keep her use hidden from those that she knew. I feel like the, like, sipping drinks part is a... Hmm. It's like, well, didn't you go to rehab to stop doing all the things? Right. Is drinking part of, like, the the 12-step program? Well, the following is a summation of the events that occurred based on the evidence in the police report. Right. When Bryn arrived home, she and Phil got into a heated argument, although it's impossible to know what about. Most speculate that Phil saw that she was high and told her that he had planned to follow through on his threat of leaving with the kids. As the fight began to escalate, Phil did what he always had done and removed himself from the situation, choosing to go to sleep rather than continue to fight with her. This left Bryn to ruminate and work herself up mentally. Her despair and drug-fueled thoughts would likely start her down the path of a vicious thought cycle with all thoughts ending in something terrible for her life. After he was asleep, Bryn retrieved a 38 caliber handgun she had bought herself for protection and walked into their bedroom where Phil lay asleep in the bed. She then shot him three times, once between the eyes, once in the throat, and once in the chest. He died instantly in his sleep without even realizing what was going on. His son, Sean, woke up hearing gunshots, but having never heard them before, he believed them to be the sounds of doors slamming. After killing her husband, Bryn walked about the house snorting cocaine and drinking. After about an hour or so, she called Ron at 3.25 a.m. and told him that when she came home, she found a note from Phil that read simply, quote, I'm going out for the night. I'll be back, end quote, which, of course, was a lie. She asked Ron if she could, if she could come back to his house and hang out because she didn't want to be home alone. Ron said no. Uh, he told her no, telling her that she should stay home with her kids, especially since they would be there without an adult in the house. Right. No, no. Twenty minutes later, Bryn arrived at Ron's house noticeably intoxicated. She told Ron that she thought she killed Phil but didn't know for sure. Ron, used to her theatrics and drama when she was drunk, didn't believe her. Hmm. When she showed him the gun she claimed to have used, he looked it over and thought there was no ammunition missing and told her as much. 
Basically, he told her he didn't believe her. Mm-hmm. At this point, she began to get sick from the combination of cocaine and alcohol. After vomiting, she had asked Ron to call her house, house just to see if Phil would pick up the phone. Ron did call the house and grew a bit more concerned when uh, they received no answer. Ron kept Bryn awake for the next two hours, worried that if she fell asleep, she would die of an overdose. When she sobered up a bit, the two made their way back to the house as Bryn continued to rehash the fact that she had killed Phil. At this point, Ron wasn't sure what to believe. While driving to the house, Bryn called another friend named Judy and told her that she had killed Phil and that her life was over. Judy also thought Bryn was just super high and not thinking straight, but Bryn's conviction led her to drive over to the Hartman household. At 6 a.m., when Ron and Bryn entered the house, they made their way to the master bedroom. There was Phil, deceased, on the bed with multiple bullet wounds visible. Ron (laughs) was shocked. I bet. He had known that Bryn, had he known that Bryn was serious, he would have gotten medical attention way earlier and felt entirely unsure of how to proceed at this point. According to him, everything seemed like it was moving in slow motion. He didn't know what to do or what was going on and vaguely remembered hearing Bryn in the other room making another phone call. It's tough to count on people that are high on cocaine. Right? Mm -hmm. Well, this time uh, she called another friend telling them that she had killed Phil. After shaking off the shock of seeing Phil's body, Ron grabbed the nearest phone and called 911. He told them that there had been a shooting and that one person was deceased. While he was on the phone with the police, Bryn made her way into the master bedroom with Phil, locking herself inside so no one could get to her. She called her sister and told her what she had done and asked her to take care of the kids for her before ending the phone call. The police arrived on scene and removed everyone from the home, including Sean and Bergen, who had been sleeping. Once the police were at the master bedroom door, they called in to Bryn, asking her to open the door for them. Sobbing and ignoring the police requests, Bryn got into bed next to Phil. It was there that she shot herself in the same manner that she had killed her husband. The weeks that followed the tragic death of Phil Hartman were incredibly difficult for those who loved him. Not only had he been murdered by the person he loved, but the media had taken the story and run amok with it. Every day, new tabloids would speculate on why Bryn took his life. Some papers stated that he was gay and put a homophobic spin on, the entire, on his entire life. Others tried to find, quote, the other woman, writing that he had cheated on his wife for years. And this was the only reason why she opted to kill him. Hmm. Many of the initial reports wrote about Phil as if he had a dark secret double life and tried to paint him in a negative light to the dismay of everyone who knew him. He did have a pretty dark secret life, but it was not necessarily... Uh, it wasn't what they were trying to make no, it out to be. No. There were unsubstantiated claims of abuse, mental and physical and emotional, and drug use by the media as well. All of this would later be discovered to be untrue. All of it. Good. The Hartmans and their friends spoke about how they would move forward from this tragedy on the morning they were informed about Phil's passing. Having dealt with the media before, one thing they wanted to make sure of was that they didn't give the media what they wanted. In the weeks that followed, they isolated themselves, completely refusing to go outside or interact with any strangers. Hmm. Reporters tried to infiltrate their lives and get the inside scoop but the family stayed tightly knit and tightly lipped. Phil's peers at Saturday Night Live and those who he worked with on various other projects came forward to honor his life and death with multiple memorial services. Paul Rubens, who had a falling out with Phil after he left Pee Wee's Playhouse, remarked that he regretted not reconnecting with his friend. Hmm. And that would be one of his biggest mistakes of his life. Later on, when it was relayed to John Lovitz that it had been Andy Dick who supplied the cocaine to Bryn uh, on the night she killed Phil, Lovitz bashed Dick's head into a bar and told him it was his fault that his friend had died. As for Bryn, her brother Greg remained steadfast that his sister was a deeply troubled and misunderstood person who was not in full control of her mental faculties when she killed Phil and then herself. Hmm. 
Despite her demons, he believed her to be a great mother who only wanted the best for her children and always put them before everyone else. Mm. Unless she was high and leaving them home alone when she went to see her dealer. What we want to be and what we act as, what Mm -hmm. we are in our actions are always... Right. You got to get them close, but that's not close. Greg blamed her use of the antidepressant Zoloft... Uh, for her behavior and said that she had been erroneously prescribed the medication so her doctor could get a kickback from the pharmaceutical company. He went on to claim that she was not depressed when she had been described, prescribed the drug and it was never shared with her that combining Zoloft and alcohol and let's not forget cocaine yeah. would increase the negative side effects. Greg went on to sue the makers of Zoloft, and the case was settled in 1999 with Pfizer paying Hartman's children a cash settlement. However, one of the doctors who looked over the case stated that it is unlikely that Greg would have won in a trial. Hmm. Uh, Given Bryn's erratic behavior prior to her even being prescribed the drug, he speculated that the case was settled to decrease any negative publicity surrounding their product. John Hartman, Phil's brother, stated that after he received the toxicology report from the coroner and was informed that due to the high levels of alcohol, cocaine, and Zoloft in her system, it was likely that she had no idea what was going on. He immediately forgave her, but others have not been so kind. Phil Hartman was a wonderful man, though deeply complicated. He worked hard to make the lives of everyone around him better, and he sought to make the world a happier place. He did. His loss is still felt today. It is. And likely will always be felt. And now it's time for the conclusion of this week's Dipshit Files. Ah. Thank you so much for putting all that together and putting all those pieces together so that we can know that. Thank you for suggesting this topic. He was one of my favorites for sure. I can see why. It felt like a genuine person on television, which is rare. Mm -hmm. In my view, I'm a fucking cunt though. But TV is not a place to find people that are like, we're really good folk. Right. It's like people really want to be famous and yeah. really will stomp each other to get it. You know, in my research and, and watching him, uh, listening to him talk and seeing him in video, uh, he really seemed, he did seem like a genuine person. Yeah. And you never would have known this darkness was going on. You never would have known it. And That's why it was so, such a surprise for everyone except for his friends in the circle and his, yeah. obviously all the people in his, wherever he worked. Right. Because she made herself fucking known. Well, nobody, yeah, his coworkers and his friends and his family, nobody was surprised by it. I bet not. Well, they were surprised that he was murdered, but right. they weren't surprised that, that she was, had she done something. Yeah. yeah. He was, a, he was one of the greats. Yeah. I mean, the, his contribution to so many of the people listening right now is childhoods mm-hmm. and their adolescence and probably just their adulthoods mm-hmm. from the Simpsons to Saturday Night Live to a bunch of movies that he did where, right. I mean, he stole the show every time. Mm-hmm. So, and the fact he was part of Pee Wee's Playhouse, come on. Mm-hmm. A lot of you grew up with that shit. The fucking cherry, cheering shit up. <laughs> yeah. So he... I don't know. I was I wasn't super familiar with him because I didn't watch any of the shows or anything, but I knew who he was. Hmm. And when it hit the news that this had happened, it was goodness. I'm trying to think. There was some weird shit going on in that time. Man, in, it, was all, it was a weird time. For it was sure. a very. I mean, just a year prior, not even a full year prior to that, Princess Diana had been killed, and because that was in August, I think of '97. Maybe it was July of 97 that Princess Diana went. Maybe even earlier than that. I'm not sure. Right. But then Somewhere shortly after that, Phil Hartman was killed. And then shortly after that, after Phil Hartman, something else happened. And I just remember sitting on my back patio going, what the fuck is going on? Mm-hmm. All these people are dying. Right. Yeah. Young, too young. And, too young. Yeah. yeah I, think, I think Phil Hartman was 49 when he passed. Yeah, he was right in the prime. He didn't pass when he was murdered. Right. I should say. Absolutely. I mean, I stand corrected. Absolutely murdered by a fucking... Yeah. When you choose to go down a path, mm-hmm. it's awesome if you can get out of that path, mm-hmm. the, you know, when you're on drugs and stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, it's a... Yes. It's, it's, a, it's a tough it's a path. T- it's a testament to, to your strength. Yes. But choosing to take that path, fucking A. Mm-hmm. Like that... That becomes all the things that you do from that point on are your fault, even mm-hmm. if you're out of your mind. It just mm-hmm. is the way it is. All right. So there's resources if you guys want to check mm-hmm. out more on this. Yes. And again, thank you for 
telling us the story in such a great way. You're welcome. I, w- I really felt like uh, I learned a lot more about that case. Hmm. And yeah, I'd, not a nice lady. No, and, no. Uh, troubled, troubled individual for sure. Yeah. I, I feel bad for all of the people involved in that. Yeah. Okay. Well, I have more information, uh, some fun little excerpts that I'd like to add, but we'll go ahead and put that in the bonus, which we're going to do right after this. That's right. That'll be in Patreon for anybody who wants to listen to that. We appreciate all of our littermates in there mm-hmm. and everybody that's uh, listening and contributing. We appreciate our trusted turd triad and our trusted turd herders, mm-hmm. our Reddit regulators, subreddit, fuck. <laughs> Uh, to all of our card traders out there, there's so many cards, 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 folks. Yes. Our meme army is always amazing mm-hmm. and probably one of my favorite things on earth. Uh, we appreciate the shit out of you when you guys send us emails and give us ideas and tell us what's up. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can do that at, where's our email? Dipshitfilespod at gmail.com. That's a place you can type. If you'd like to join us in the bonus, you can go to Patreon forward slash scatcast. Mm-hmm. Patreon.com. You guys know how the fucking internet works. <laughs> And as always, we'll talk at you in the future. And it'll seem like the present. Bye. Bye. Files. Bing. Bing bong. 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 Poop.